Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking. So first of all, you might notice that my voice is a little bit not quite on form today because I've got a bit of a cold. It's not COVID, don't worry, but um, I've had some kind of horrible cold type thing over the last week and it's kind of hit me a bit harder than usual because I've not actually had a cold for about a year and a half now because of... uh, social distancing and and masks and lockdowns and everything one one benefit is i've not caught any colds but one downside to that is that now i've caught one uh, well I, I did have one I was, I was quite ill over the last few days but I'm pretty much all right now but i've just got the kind of grim remnants of it so you might notice a bit of stop and starting today and a little bit of a hoarseness in the old voice but anyway aside from that then uh, today's episode is basically going to be all about a continuation of what I was talking about in my previous episode, which was um, what is the extent of the, the cover-up on UFOs that's being uh, played out across the world by world governments, but I suppose particularly in, in America, because that's obviously where uh, the majority of the um, you know the new info is actually coming from, and there's a little bit more transparency there than there perhaps is in a lot of other parts of the world. So... I had mentioned in the previous episode, which is probably worth checking out if you if you're interested in kind of like following the, this particular area of, of the UFO topic, um, might be worth having a listen to that if you've not already. Um, which was last week's one, and that was part one of the what is the extent of the UFO uh, cover up. I think it's actually my most listened to episode that I've actually done so far. So uh, thank you for everyone who checked it out. I'm glad people enjoy listening to it. That's the main thing. So, um. I mentioned in that episode a little bit about going into some more detail about a couple of things which we're going to delve into today. And first of all is the Wilson Davis memo. So if you're talking about crash retrievals and whether or not the government have actually got some kind of exotic material or craft or what biological material, bodies, whatever you want to call it, one thing that you kind of have to mention is the Wilson Davis memo. Now, again, I'm kind of aware that there's a lot of different people who listen to this podcast. Some of them know all about this. Some of them know a lot more than I do. Some of them have no idea what I'm talking about. So let me just explain a little bit about, first of all, what actually are the documents that we're talking about here. So basically, 15 pages of notes. This is a couple of years ago now. uh, Quietly appeared on Reddit detailing uh, an alleged explosive hour-long meeting in las vegas in 2002 between astrophysicist eric w davis and the uh, recently at the time retired director of the defense intelligence agency vice admiral thomas r wilson so obviously that's the wilson and davis that is referred to in the title of the 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 document the way that it's referred to is the wilson davis memo the wilson davis leak um you know there's various other ways but that that's what it's talking about the two people who were actually having the conversation in this meeting and the main subject of the meeting was basically um an, an ultra secret government program dealing with reverse engineering of crashed and recovered ufos and and a lot of it centers around um 
Wilson's attempts to be able to get to the bottom of what's actually going on with this and the fact that he's actually run up against some um, resistance and not being able to dig into the extent of the knowledge that's available there within the secretive government departments despite the fact that he's got quite high clearances um, and also mentioned is the fact that there's a private aerospace company involved and um it's not necessarily just the government and and there's a lot of other things mentioned in there so i can't recommend enough if you if you are interested in you've not read the, the the whole of the notes you may have heard just the name going around on ufo twitter or whatever but it's definitely worth actually going and having a read through because that's the only way to really give the full picture of of what it's about i i can't really sit here and read 15 pages of notes so i'm not really going to get into that specifically but um, just a little bit more about the background of the notes first before we delve into the actual contents of them. So, Rich Dolan, the uh, obviously very well-known and respected uh, UFO researcher, he was shown a couple of pages of the notes back in 2006, apparently. And um, the researcher, again, very well-known and respected, Grant Cameron, uh, he'd actually been given a physical copy of the notes, apparently, um, by a guy called uh, James Rigney. And that's supposedly about six months before the notes actually appeared on, on Reddit um, and were made public. I, I actually first heard about these documents myself on a, I think it was a Joe Rogan podcast. And uh, Jeremy Corbell was on there and he mentioned that the Wilson Davis memo um was indeed real and, and and Corbell actually said uh, for what it's worth depending on again whether you you place any value into the things that, that Corbell says but for what it's worth he said that he is in a position to know that the documents are indeed real and um, so that's again that's the first I heard of it and I thought wow I'm better look into this a little bit more I'd heard the name floating around but um up until that point i didn't really look into it particularly seriously but I, and particularly actually over the last couple of months since starting my podcast uh, as i've been looking into this just deeper and deeper and becoming a bit obsessed uh, i've been trying to look into it a lot more because it's really quite a significant point within the ufo topic especially if you're trying to get to the bottom of government secrecy and things to do with crash retrievals. And um, it's worth also mentioning as well, before we get into the actual contents of the notes, is there is a link here to uh, Edgar Mitchell. Uh, apparently the notes themselves were actually uh, part of Edgar Mitchell's estate and were actually leaked from the estate. And I think this was confirmed by Eric Davis accidentally in his uh, Stephen Greenstreet interview. So anyway, that said, let's crack on with actually talking about what the actual contents of the notes were and some significant points. As I say, I can't really read out the entire 15 pages, so you really have to check that yourself. But some of the most significant points there are the fact that, first of all, Admiral Wilson says that he's looked into various areas of the government and tried to access information regarding UFOs and, and just having had a bit of interest in, in that particular area. And basically, uh, he's been told that he is not able to access any of the information within these particular um, projects because he doesn't have a need to know. And you can imagine that if you were in a position where you are the, you know, one of the directors of the Defence Intelligence Agency, that you probably would be able to access all of the departments, and no matter how secret they were. 
but apparently that's not the case and there's also hinted uh, in in the wilson davis memo as well that there's this secret organization mj12 supposedly super top secret organization that goes by many names and the name changes constantly to avoid any detection and it is essentially a breakaway program which perhaps at some stage in the past was given um, the authority by whoever was in charge at the time to basically not be accountable to the usual processes that regulate these kind of organisations with regard to funding and with regard to being held accountable for certain things um, in terms of you know laws and, and, and the rules and regulations. And you can imagine that if a government ever did find some kind of extraterrestrial craft that that may be the case that you would is so far outside of the normal things that you try and control within departments and so on that you may have to create some kind of special organization like that and anyway there is some mention of that mj12 uh, in particular there is some mention of that within this document uh, and um the wilson and davis themselves for the kind of the most of the bulk of this actual document are having a conversation um which which specifically mentions that wilson had been told he doesn't have a need to know uh, regarding finding out more about ufos and crash retrievals and that even the the president uh, doesn't actually have a need to know about this and it's all contained within these uh, breakaway kind of um projects within you know the the really murky secret departments of of the government there's also mention of uh, a top aerospace technology contractor having uh, materials or an intact craft in fact but wilson won't mention which one that is as it is um quote core secret and there's also mention of a specific reverse engineering program from technology that was recovered in the past and this technology was apparently not a foreign adversary and was in fact an intact craft and that this was allegedly technology not of this earth not made by man not by human hands and in fact it also says that they don't actually know where it's from but they have some ideas on this but they do know for a fact that it was not of this earth not made by man not made by human hands or not by human hands is the exact quote that's definitely um you know something that when i read that sentence for the first time it's it's quite shocking um but yeah that's kind of the, the a few of the main points about what's actually talked about within the documents that's one little paragraph of summary that i've put together there but obviously if you want to know the full depth read the whole thing definitely worth doing if you're interested in this so moving on from that then what have davis and wilson themselves actually said regarding these documents because that's the first part of call isn't it like we're talking about a conversation between two people here that supposedly took place that we have notes uh, basically a transcription of the actual conversation that took place so what are the guys who actually had the conversation saying about this that's where we've got to start so joe mergier another very well respected extremely thorough um researcher and somebody who's definitely again worth looking into uh, to, especially about this because um there's a few people who've really you know dug deep into the wilson davis memo and, and joe merger is definitely one of those people um 
and he had uh, Joe had uh, a pre-existing friendship with uh, Eric Davis after having had a conversation with him about a separate matter which I believe was the Bob Lazar story and uh, Joe actually contacted Davis via Facebook Messenger regarding verifying the authenticity of the Wilson Davis memo but Davis wouldn't go into it basically the only thing he, he sent back as a comment was no comment and that's it. He's refused to elaborate. Um, also, I believe James Iandoli, uh, engaging a phenomenon, has also received a no comment response from Eric Davis as well. And I think many other people as well have tried to get his his uh, response about this, but not had much luck of getting any reply at all. So basically, what's happening there is he's just saying no comment. That's it. I'm not even going to go there. Um, there was actually a Stephen Greenstreet interview, which I'm going to talk about later as well, which he did actually kind of elaborate a bit more, but still essentially saying no comment. Now, Admiral Wilson, he's the other guy. You're talking about Wilson Davis. We've discussed Davis there. What about Wilson? So Admiral Wilson has directly addressed this issue, basically calling the notes fiction and that he wouldn't know Eric Davis if he walked in the room right now. However... He did state in the actual meeting, according to the notes anyway, that he would indeed claim no knowledge of any of this ever happening and would just deny it. And, you know, he would do, wouldn't you? If you, if you, if you go into a meeting and you, you're basically putting your own credibility on the line, risking a lot of things by trying to dig into this topic, you'd say, look, if this ever comes out, obviously I'm going to deny any of it's ever ever happened. So the fact that he calls the notes fiction isn't necessarily in itself any indication that they are actually fictitious, you know? But then again, to play devil's advocate on that... That's another example of the kind of thing that you might actually plant into a fake set of notes if you wanted to make it seem more believable. So it's very, very murky waters with this one. I mean, Wilson's saying that the notes are complete fiction, basically, and he's given quite a few statements saying things of that nature. So it's interestingly, he's not actually saying no comment. He is specifically saying, yeah, those notes are not real. So he acknowledges the existence of the notes, but just says that the fictitious is not real. Never even met Eric Davis, or I may have met him, but I can't remember. Things like that. So he's really kind of saying, nah, I'm shutting this down. But then again, he said in the notes that, you know, he would shut it down if it ever became public out somehow. But like I said, if you were going to make a fake set of notes, you would probably slip something like that in, wouldn't you? Because it kind of covers your own back. It's a weird one. Not saying that they are a fake set of notes, but it's worth considering that as a possibility. Now then, Stephen Greer is another person who's commented about these notes and is somebody who's actually mentioned within the notes as well. Um, and he... Dr. Greer has actually himself claimed that the notes are largely accurate with a few minor errors. So that's seemingly another verification that the notes are real. And uh, Hal Puttoff as well, another um, high-up astrophysicist working at the Pentagon who actually worked with Davis, has stated that he will not comment. And I think the direct quote that I made a note of here was, quote, I wish to state that I have no comment on the authenticity of the so-named Wilson document, as I still retain USG security accesses and remain bound by the secrecy oaths I have taken. I believe it is in the best interests of the USG and myself not to comment on any documents that purport to describe classified USG programs or information, unquote. So that's 
a few of the more significant comments that have come out from people directly involved in in these notes or people who are connected very closely to people within the notes and it's a real mixed bag that isn't it we've got Eric Davis won't comment at all. We've got Wilson that says that there are a lot of nonsense and fictitious. We've got Stephen Greer who claims that actually, yeah, it's all true. And we've got Hal Potoff who, again, won't comment. So it's a tough one there because you have to decide, well, who am I going to believe in this situation? Because you've got basically all of the options on the table. It's fake, it's completely true, and it's I'm not even going to comment on it. <laughs> Very difficult, isn't it? It's just a pick-your-side kind of thing. Pick your poison. So... We have to try and delve in a bit to find out what the actual evidence is to suggest that the documents are real. And it's worth bearing in mind as well, this is, I'm trying to kind of skip through this because I can't spend that long on it uh, here. I may come back to this topic again if I find some new information or something, but you really should check out the the more in-depth analysis that's been done. I know uh, John Greenwald literally had um, Jay from Project Unity on his podcast last week talking about the Wilson Davis memo. And I think John Greenwald is now firmly of the opinion that um, the Wilson Davis documents are not real. He thinks there's a, a variety of different reasons for that and he goes into it in great detail. And Jay from Project Unity is convinced that they are real at, at this point. And again, you know, these people's opinions might also change depending on when you listen to this podcast. That might not be the case anymore. So worth bearing that in mind as well. But yeah, John Greenwald and Jay did a three-hour podcast on just this topic um, last week. So if you really want a deep dive, that's the place to go. And both of those guys are a lot more uh, clued up on this than I am. But as I always do, this is my kind of interpretation of just a regular guy looking into this and, and what, what do I kind of find as, as conclusions. So what's the evidence that suggests that the documents are real? So first of all, I think... The fact that Davis has refused to comment is not necessarily evidence to suggest that these documents are real. As John Greenwald has asserted recently, Davis stated in the Stephen Greenstreet interview that I mentioned earlier, quote, you know, they're purportedly classified information. I'm not at liberty to confirm or verify any aspects of those notes. You know, when you have security clearances, that's something that you don't want to violate because the Department of Justice under the Obama administration and its continued under the Trump administration policies, they will vigorously prosecute anybody with security clearances who will go out of their way to discuss any classified information that got leaked or released into the public illegally or through other means. Unquote. So that's Eric Davis there on the Stephen Greenstreet interview talking about in a bit more detail as to why he won't comment. And John Greenwald's assertion is basically that he won't comment either way. He won't say that they're real. He won't even say that they exist. He's literally just saying no comment because of these new um, policies that are in place you can be prosecuted by even accepting that the thing is real. So he's literally just saying, no comment, not going to go there. I'm not even going to entertain the possibility of whether they're real or not. I'm just not going to even deal with it. So I guess you could look at that a few different ways, but the, even even the fact that he has refused to comment in, in and of itself could suggest that these the notes are actually 
significant in some way because if he won't comment on them because they are classified or they contain classified information that sort of could be used as a as a clarification that at least some of the material in there is is you know relates to classified information some of it could be real some of it could be false it's it's, it's a tricky one and uh Lou Lou Elizondo has has also answered some questions in interviews about the Wilson Davis memo by deflecting the question. I think it was again the James Iandoli interview. He was asked about the Wilson Davis memo and he sort of deflected the question to to Eric Davis and said that Eric Davis is one of the most brilliant minds on the planet and he's and this is the the one that really kind of stuck out in my mind. He said that Eric Davis is incapable of lying. Now that 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 really stuck in my head that one when I heard the interview at the time and I hadn't really read up on what the Wilson Davis memo was all about at that stage but now I actually went back and had a quick listen to that again and it's very interesting that because that could be interpreted really as a roundabout way of confirming that the notes are real by sort of affirming the credibility of Davis himself and the fact that Davis won't comment could be put down to the fact that he won't even comment on it at all because of the worry of perhaps being prosecuted for the reasons I mentioned earlier or it could be Lou Elizondo seems to be suggesting there and again very open to interpretation this but it could be that Eric Davis won't comment on it because he doesn't want to lie or apparently is incapable of lying so he just doesn't even want to entertain the conversation for a fear of accidentally giving things away because of this thing of being incapable of lying i don't know it's a very it's a very tricky one and these are all very small minor details really at the end of the day and but that's kind of the small details the level that you have to look into if you want to try and figure out what's actually going on here it's a very tough one but again thought that was worth mentioning and Lou Elizondo, as I've said before, is somebody that I put a real lot of faith in. You know, he's a guy who's never slipped up. You know, he seems to be, you know, my gut feeling is that he's a, he's doing this from a place of honesty. He's not trying to pull the wool. He's never really tried to make any money out of any of this. He's actually kind of really put himself in harm's way by even getting into any of this. He had a, a cushy job. Why would you quit that? Um, to then go and not make any money by telling the, the you know the, the truth about all this stuff to the public so for all of those reasons I have a lot of faith in Lou Elizondo and it does seem to me that Lou Elizondo is first of all significantly backing up Eric Davis and also maybe hinting that there is some truth to these documents because Lou Elizondo could have said no comment there which he does on a lot of things that he can't comment on he'll just say oh, no comment not going to go there but he didn't, and Lou Elizondo, everything he says is said for a reason, and that that is one of the more significant points there, I think, about something that could suggest that there's something to these documents. And also, the, the last kind of point on things that suggest that the documents are real is that there's quite a few people within the UFO community who have asserted that the notes are real and that they have had this confirmed to them by off-the-record sources. And there's there's too many to mention, but a lot of researchers that are extremely... that I hold in very high regard, 
people who are way more experienced in all this stuff than me and actually have um, sources. And in some cases, some of these guys have sources that potentially still work within the Pentagon and things like that. And a lot of these guys have said, although they are off-record sources and they can't say who said it or exactly the specifics of what was said, they have asserted that they're in a position to know. And again, that is all down to the individual who's saying it. And we're talking here about an individual who you deem to be either trustworthy or not, who has then had some information relayed to them from another source who they claim is is trustworthy, but other people may not claim is trustworthy. So it's such a difficult thing to get to the bottom of. But for me, when you look at all of that added together, it suggests that there's something going on there. But what's the evidence to suggest that the documents are not real? So, first of all, they don't have an exact chain of custody. We know that they were supposedly leaked from the Edgar Mitchell estate, but how did they get into his estate? We know that they appeared online from uh, an anonymous source, which I think, to be fair, I think it's safe to say that certain people have, have suggested that it may be Grant Cameron who was the source because he supposedly had these notes before they got got leaked and some stuff like that. But we don't know for sure. I, I don't think Grant Cameron, again, if anybody else knows more about this, get in touch. You know, it's always great to, to, to clarify things. Um, I'm on Twitter, at UFO Thinker. Give me a shout there. Or a DM if you don't want to do it publicly. Um, and um, But yeah, as far as I'm aware, there's no exact source of where these things came from. There's no chain. There's no verified thing where you can know for a fact that these things are real it's just an anonymous leak and the frustrating thing about those kinds of things is we just don't know for sure and there have been some hints as well that they're not entirely accurate even by the people that were actually mentioned in the notes such as dr greer the people who were actually verifying that these notes are significant and that they are real um uh, even those people have suggested that the notes are not entirely accurate so we have to be very careful here not to just kind of read it as fact because some of it is not now what is the bit that's not and what's the bit that is fact it's that's the bit that gets really tricky and another one that's uh, quite significant here is john greenwald's analysis because as i said john greenwald is somebody who i put a lot of weight behind what he says and you know a very very experienced researcher been looking into this topic for a lot longer than i have and he has suggested that um there could possibly be a movie script or some kind of fictitious writings not particularly a theory that i subscribe to that particular one there but very recently in the last few days John Greenwald has suggested that a document which supposedly inspired Wilson to look into this thing further is actually a fake document with numerous glaring errors. And you can find that analysis on his YouTube channel as well. I think he did it a couple of days after the interview that he did with Jay from Project Unity. And he did it basically as a follow-up to his, his interview. Um, I think one of the things Jay brought up on, on that particular um the three-hour interview was this particular document which i forget the name of but if you go on the black vault youtube channel you'll be able to see it there um, and apparently 
a lot of the arguments from people who claim that the Wilson Davis memo is real hinge on this particular document as the document that inspired Wilson to actually look into the thing further in the first place. And now it's apparently been shown that it's very possible that that document is fake. And I've watched the video myself and he's making some very good points in it, uh, John Greenwald there. It's like the watermark at the top, the, the badge kind of stamp is the wrong badge according to what it should have from the people who'd wrote the document and there's so many other areas and when you consider this is coming from John Greenwald a guy who has done 10,000 plus fire requests and knows the absolute ins and outs of these government documents and the formats of them I'm inclined to take what he's saying quite seriously but even though that is an interesting development it doesn't actually show that the Wilson Davis memo is fake all it does really is just show that another document that's linked to the overall story is in itself possibly a fake. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a tricky link there really. So just to try and round up on that as best as possible for the time being, a few general thoughts about the Wilson Davis memo to, to conclude for now. And as I say, it's such a big topic, I may come back to this another time. But I find it quite interesting that this set of notes is basically a word-for-word -word transcript of a conversation that supposedly took place in a car, I believe. And this suggests to me that there may have actually been a recording of the conversation. Does that recording still exist? Very, very doubtful indeed. If it was some kind of a tape recording or some kind of a, a recording, it's almost certainly been deleted, even if it was a recording. But I've also heard other people suggest that Eric Davis has a particularly good memory for those type of things. You know, he is, after all, an extremely brilliant mind. You know, this guy's an astrophysicist. You know, when it comes to science, he's, he, you know, he's incredible at what he does. So I can imagine it's possible he does have a, a photographic memory and he's basically just gone back after the meeting and written down everything that took place so that that was something that i thought was worth adding in there but in, in way of conclusion it's just like many things in the ufo topic we have to rely on off the record sources anonymous leaks etc and it's so hard to get to the truth when that is the source of your information because while there's not actually any exact factual evidence that i can you know go and have a look at right now when you have to kind of look at the bigger picture here and, and it, it seems to be there's something compelling going on with this i mean even if in the absolute worst case scenario this thing is uh, some kind of disinfo uh, effort that has been put out specifically to muddy the waters even in disinfo efforts a lot of the time they mix a lot of facts in with the fiction so there's definitely a lot of interesting things in there but I think for me personally, the jury's kind of still out. I, I find that it's a very important piece to the overall puzzle, but I need to look into it a lot more. There's a lot of other names mentioned within the Wilson Davis documents that I don't really know about at this stage in time. And I, I would urge anybody who's listening to this, who's who's you know who's interested as well, look into it for yourself. Make up your own mind. I'm just trying to kind of put some information out there, digest all the information that I'm trying to get my head around. And there's a lot more detailed analyses out there, like I said earlier, that you can get stuck into. So yeah, get get stuck in. And, and anybody else who does know, maybe perhaps you've been looking into this whole thing a lot more than I have, let me know what you guys think. It's always great to hear. So now we've talked about the Wilson Davis memo there. 
a couple of other points relating to crash retrievals and comments from significant individuals before we actually get into the specifics of some cases. So another notable mention here is uh, Commander Miller, a retired naval commander. Somebody who Leslie Keane, uh, you know, respected journalist and reporter, um, she's actually called Miller a true insider of the highest order and uh, one of the few who has persistently taken his concern about, concern about UFOs to authorities above him. And from the things that Leslie Keane's been digging into and the interviews and things that she's done with uh, Will Miller, Commander Will Miller, one of the quotes that, that actually came from Miller was, quote, the military officers I talked with were extremely interested in getting factual information on the UFO subject, since even at the flag officer level, they were unable to get that information through normal military intelligence channels. Throughout the years, as Miller actually continued to speak with his contacts, he became more and more convinced of, of, of a well-concealed need-to-know UFO program based on statements that he says confirm this fact made by military personnel attending Pentagon briefings and, and others. And Miller actually explained that there's a, a control group which can't allow anybody who isn't cleared for the unacknowledged special access program to access their UFO research. And very important quote again here is, quote, Neither Joint Chiefs of Staff Intelligence nor the Director of DIA himself could get any information on the subject. This is a fact, yet I know that sources within multiple organisations maintain such information. Leadership remains protected from such knowledge. As far as I'm concerned, the question is answered. I know for a fact that such information resides within several three-letter agencies, unquote. So that's another extremely high up military individual who's in a position to be able to look into this further who has who's actually come up against the same brick walls and does seem to suggest that there is some kind of mj12 some shadowy organization controlling the the materials and the information regarding ufos and crash retrievals so again i thought that was another interesting point that was just worth going into and will miller somebody that i'm going to try and look into a lot more it's kind of i've heard the name a bit and quotes here and there but that, i think that's a, an avenue to go down and another little side note then um similar kind of thing is harry reed so a quick quote from Harry Reid then, uh, Senate, Senate Majority Leader, I believe Harry Reid's actual title was. Um, so, quote, I was told for decades that Lockheed had some of these retrieved materials and I tried to get, as I recall, a classified approval by the Pentagon to have me go look at the stuff. They would not approve that. I don't know what all the numbers were, what kind of classification it was, but they would not give that to me, unquote. So basically, another one there, Senate Majority Leader, somebody who's been a bit intrigued in the topic and thought, you know what, I'm going to use my position to actually look into this further and try and get to the bottom of it, brick-walled. And then what actually happened after that was that Harry Reid actually ended up backtracking on those comments, I think on Twitter, the following day, and kind of like, oh, disowned it, oh, yeah, I didn't really mean that, and, and tried to sweep it under the rug. But then actually... 
later on down the line on a podcast with Max Moscovich, he actually said the following. So this is Harry Reid again, quote, I thought that if there'd been something there, I'd want to see it. And so I went through the hoops necessary to get clearance and they wouldn't give it to me. Now, I'm not too sure that that would be the same answer today. Maybe it would be. But I think we've made a lot of headway since that time in making sure that there's transparency in everything we do in government, unquote. And then Max asked, so quote again, do you think there is a correlation between what Lockheed Martin might or might not have and our advances in technology, unquote? So and then Harry Reid replied to that question, quote, I think that there's no question that we're advancing in technology in many different parts of the scientific world. And I repeat what I said before. I think this is something the government must be transparent with, and I'm not sure they have been, unquote. So obviously, that's another high up individual who's in a position to perhaps dig into this thing more and have come up against mostly brick walls, but the information that they have been able to actually get access to suggests to them from having been in that position, which let's be honest, you know, somebody like a Senate majority leader, somebody like the, you know, high up in the military is going to be in a much better position with the contacts they've had, the off-record conversations that they've had, the things they've seen over the years behind the scenes. They're going to be in a much better position to be able to make a determination as to what's really going on. And these are the conclusions that these people are coming to. It suggests that there's something significant happening there. So I think where I'm going to leave it with the Wilson Davis notes is hopefully I've kind of managed to put across a reasonable summary of where I'm up to with it so far. Like I say, very open to hearing any other thoughts about about that topic there because it's really fascinating and I really want to get to the truth of actually what's going on. So if any bits that I've missed, fill me in. Anyone's just found it interesting to hear about, I'd love to hear from you as well. I'm on Twitter at UFO Thinker. Give us a shout, as I always say. It's always great to actually hear from people. But I think that's where I'm going to leave it for now. But it's really, it's more like the beginning because I'm still looking into this thing. There's still plenty of podcasts and plenty of articles out there to read about that particular area. So you guys make up your own minds. And I think what might be worth having a look into next is the actual cases to find out where this smoke's coming from. You know, are there any actual UFO crashes that we can get into where we can definitively say it's overwhelmingly likely that a UFO crashed here and the government picked up the debris and took it somewhere? Because if that is the case, then it would seem a lot more likely that the government actually does have some exotic materials or a craft or whatever it might be. So let's get into that. Okay, so the case that I want to get into now then, the first one to tackle. We're talking about crash retrievals. Best to start at the beginning. Now, there have been accounts of crash retrievals going back, you know, way, way into the past, the 1800s and so on. But the information that you can actually dig up on them it's a bit tough to get to, you know, it's very hard to really get proper information about anything before the Trinity case, which is what we're going to get into today. I've heard um, Paola Harris saying that the reason that they consider this to be such a big deal is 
because of that fact because this is the first case where you can really try to get to the bottom of it and there's more information you can dig up and that the actual eyewitnesses are still here still around or at least some of them are so trinity is an alleged ufo crash retrieval prior to roswell that occurred in san antonio new mexico in 1945 so there was recently a book published on this exact topic called Trinity, the Best Kept Secret by who I just mentioned, Paola Harris and the legendary Jacques Vallée. Now, I mentioned this first for the reasons I mentioned a minute ago, just regarding the information that's available, but also because it happened, allegedly, anyway, before Roswell. So the book tells the account of Jose Padilla, Padilla. I'm sorry if I'm murdering these names. Look, I'm from the northwest of England at the end of the day. We don't have pronunciations like that. I'm trying my best with them, so apologies to any uh, any people who uh, might be annoyed by my pronunciations. So we've got Jose Padilla, who's nine, and Reme Bassa, or Baca. I'm not too sure. It's B-A-C-A. I'm just going to refer to that individual as Remy from the Remy for the rest of this uh, episode. Save me having to say the name again. Who was seven at the time of the uh, the case? Now, many years after the incident, they claimed that on August the fifteenth, nineteen forty-five, they witnessed a crashed UFO on the Padilla Ranch, which is the family ranch there, obviously, on the outskirts of San Antonio, New Mexico. While they were riding on horseback near the ranch, I believe they were trying to find a cow that had just had calves or something along the lines of that. So they were roaming around the ranch on horseback. And they they claimed to have discovered the, the crashed vehicle. The, the craft was uh, ploughed into the ground and kind of laid a, like a groove into the ground as it, as it scraped along and then came to rest. And then what they actually did over the course of the, the following days was to actually watch the army operations to remove it, and um, which we'll get into in a lot more detail shortly. And now this story has been the, the subject of numerous books and podcasts and things by Paola Harris over a period of many years, um, culminating really in, in this, this book, which came out actually this year. Uh, and I actually heard about this case at the time that the book came out and listened to quite a few interviews and podcasts and found it quite interesting. Now, the craft itself is, let's get straight into that, eh? because that, that's the, the really cool part. And the craft itself was actually avocado shaped. And Remy said, it was the color of the old pot my mother was always trying to shine up, a dull metallic color. And moving closer as they as they attempted to approach the craft, they found that there was intense heat coming from the wreckage, and it actually ignited the the the, the surrounding vegetation, uh, which was actually burning, and apparently quite a lot of smoke in the air at the time. There was a hint that the craft itself might have been brought down by lightning in in one of the strong thunderstorms that happened in New Mexico in the late summer. Um, Paula Harris has mentioned in interviews that the storms in that area of New Mexico are particularly intense and that she thinks that the, the thunderstorm caused problems for the craft and that it hit a radio tower on the way down to the ground. When the young children approached the craft, 
they saw multiple alien beings, three feet tall, all grey, long arms, somewhat insectoid appearance with teardrop-shaped large eyes. Some of them were dead, some of them were injured, and apparently all the survivors were in some kind of distress. The beings allegedly provided telepathic communications to the two boys, and it was also mentioned by Paola that one of the boys had seen images of a skyscraper with people falling out of it, despite never having seen a skyscraper in his life up to that point. She believes that this was a premonition of the Twin Towers attack which took place over 50 years later. Now, the boys went home after this initial uh, run-in with the, with the craft and the beans and told their family, who actually returned with the boys to the site of the crash a day or so later with a policeman, and they found the wrecked craft, but with no sign of any of the beings. Eventually, the military arrived and recovered the wreckage, and the two boys saw the military load the craft onto a flatbed truck. And apparently there was a significant amount of wreckage, and they had to actually cut an opening in the gate of the property, which is apparently still evident today where the gate was actually cut and they created a road to actually get the truck to the, the site to retrieve the debris. Allegedly, the army referred to the wreckage as a weather balloon, although approximately five tonnes of debris was actually removed. But the thing is, this figure apparently was arrived at as an estimate, I believe, which was deduced from the amount of wheels that the truck had. Now, the reason I say this is Paola mentioned on the UF, on that UFO podcast with Andy McGrillan uh, in the interview that they did, she mentioned that Jacques had conducted uh, a, a conversation with one of the witnesses to inquire about how many wheels the truck had, which was an attempt to actually determine the weight of the debris that was retrieved. So knowing this, I, th I don't think it's a particularly accurate estimate because for all we know, the truck could have already been carrying removal apparatus, a crane or some kind of other... I don't think there's any clarity on that. So if there's any other pre-existing cargo on the truck or maybe the truck was half full with other cargo or some kind of wreckage from another site, who knows? But, you know, maybe the only a large truck was available, even though really they only needed a small truck. So there's a lot of different reasons as to, to why the truck could have been that size. That, and it's not necessarily, you know, they just they had an exact uh, size of truck, which you can, you can determine that that's how much the wreckage weighed. It is a bit of guesswork, informed guesswork. So I kind of think that it's a bit impossible to determine the exact amount of wreckage using that method of estimation just my opinion but i thought that was worth putting in there so upon first discovering the crashed craft remy took a bit of foil which was later used apparently to fix a windmill and um, the foil actually had similar properties to the roswell memory metal which would return to its initial shape after being scrunched up and also apparently the third witness mentioned in the book it's called Sabrina, which we'll come back to shortly, has said that she was playing with some similar foil years later in the grandfather's house. And again, in an interview, Paola states that she must, uh, quote, so he must have gone back to go get it, unquote, which again, bit debatable. 
I mean, perhaps they just found some other file similar for the kids to play with, you know, or perhaps he did go back to get it. But again, unfortunately, that's the nature of these older cases. It is impossible to verify because this individual sadly no longer with us. Now, none of this metal exists today, the foil material, as it was apparently given away as Christmas decorations, etc., to um, the family. I think the idea was that they were hanging, you know, hanging these little bits of foil as Christmas decorations and they gave it away. So, aside from the foil, Jose had removed a solid piece of metal from inside the craft which was attached to a wall. Now apparently he's used some kind of crowbar type thing to remove it from the wall and then hid it under the floorboards. Uh, he didn't tell his father, and apparently the father was actually questioned about the missing piece by the military, but he said he knew nothing about it as he wasn't aware of the fact that it was hidden there. So there was a lot of other material that the boys collected, but they handed all that over to the military, apart from the large piece that was kept underneath the floorboards, which they kept for years and eventually gave to Powell Harris, who kept it in a safety deposit box before eventually giving it to laboratories and universities for analysis. So that is massive. I mean, that is it, it's a whole different thing when you've actually got a piece of metal which is supposedly from a alien spacecraft. I mean, that that's pretty wild, isn't it? So what happened to this metal? Surely we've looked into this. Well, yes, apparently we have. So there was a, a Frontier analysis done. A company, I think the company is called Frontier. And that was done in 2015. And again, the whole analysis is available to view online. And um, just a few points from the analysis. Again, if you're interested in this, definitely recommend just having a read through the whole thing because there's actually pictures of the metal, which is fascinating to see. Well, whatever it is, it's still interesting to see. So, some points from the analysis then. I think the idea was that the metal had actually been, um, some some pieces of the metal were taken off the initial, initial object and provided as two separate metal samples. And the, uh, the two metal samples given both had identical compositions. They were aluminium, or aluminum for any of my American listeners. It's, I've never really understood this thing about aluminum, but you know, I think the majority of my listeners are in America, so um, I'll I'll just uh, I've not decided which way around I'm going to say it. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to have to say aluminum. Aluminum. Stick with my British roots, but you know what I mean anyway. So they are aluminum primar primarily alloyed to copper and silicon. Small amounts of other elements are present as well. Now, this composition is known and compares with, and then the actual analysis gives a lot of other everyday uh, uses of that particular alloy, which we find across industry to use for brackets and you know engine housings and or various different things like that. So the alloys have a wide variety of uses, such as engine crank cases, gas and oil tanks, engine oil pans, typewriter frames, and engine parts. And the isotopic ratios determined for nickel, copper, and zinc compare to terrestrial values. So I think essentially what this is getting at is that the alloys here are not particularly unusual. 
and in fact they can be found in a large number of earthly situations bit disappointing but the report does seem to try and find some links to aliens here as well suggesting that the craft could either be ours or time traveling earth inhabitants from the future or even an alien base here on earth now that's worth considering but it seems a bit of a stretch to me to be perfectly honest and also the way it strikes me that is if you're sending a a piece of metal to a laboratory and they come back to you saying well it could still be alien because of this that and that i don't know is that really a proper scientific analysis or is that a company that have already gone into this with the thinking about aliens and i would like to think that if we look at analysis here it would be just you know from a completely scientific point of view and that they maybe they wouldn't have even known about any kind of possible links to a extraterrestrial craft so yeah I, I guess you could you could interpret that a few different ways is the report completely you know unbiased or as the fact that they try to explain ways that it could be alien does that suggest that they've gone into this trying to prove that it is alien or does it actually just prove that maybe it is alien because that's what they mentioned as one of their possible conclusions the only way to really know that is to have a various different reports conducted by different organizations and don't tell any of them about what the actual origin of the metal could be and if they find anything unusual tell them to just tell you the unusual things but they shouldn't know anything about the fact whether it's come from a flying saucer or from a truck and um yeah hopefully we'll see more analysis along those lines um as, as we go along so a microscopic examination done as well and sample one the microscope photographs taken of sample one display interesting grooves on side one again unusual choice of language that interesting grooves interesting how so it was obviously machined though the coarseness of the grooved surface indicates that very fine machining was not required for this piece Overall here then, it's not really anything at all to suggest anything unusual about this metal. There are a couple of sentences saying that, for example, the purposes of the metal pieces are unknown. Now again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on. This could be seized upon by somebody who's trying to find an alien answer in the analysis. But really, to be honest, and don't get me wrong, I want to find an alien answer in this analysis. I would love nothing more than for this to be a piece of an alien spacecraft. But after looking at that particular analysis, it seems quite earthly to me. And I think it's a bit of a stretch to find anything to suggest otherworldly in the material of the construction. But then again, we're talking about something you know that, that this is just one analysis and i think what we really need to see is more analysis and much more detailed analysis done by ideally a few different companies to get a real balanced bigger picture of what's going on here so paola actually did mention in interviews that the material was subject to ongoing analysis and i would definitely be interested to see the findings in may of 2021 just prior to the release of the book she said that the material is being analyzed in labs and universities apparently it's uh, gary nolan who's doing this analysis andy mcgrillan uh, from that ufo podcast again um, confirmed to me this week that the analysis has been delayed due to covid but now has been passed to gary nolan as a matter of urgency 
So Gary Nolan is a researcher who is at the absolute cutting edge of material analysis and is using new types of machinery called a multi-parameter ion beam imager to look at the atomic structure of material. And uh, he's analyzing the samples down to the atomic level using a process called multiplexed ion beam imaging. And apparently at this level of detail, it's impossible to fake. Now, the reason for that is that we just don't have on this earth the technology to create atomically layered materials at this stage in our development anyway. And I've personally been following this area quite closely because it literally could be the smoking gun. If there's any interesting findings, there's some. if, if one fragment of metal is found that we could not make and it's extremely unlikely that any natural process could have caused this to happen that's it we've we've got the smoking gun that is the absolute answer isn't it and that's why it's so i go on about data and scientific studies into these things all the time it can sound sometimes sound a bit boring but look that's the thing that we need if we get a piece of metal that is absolutely not made by man and could not have arisen naturally what else could it be we're talking about something here that, that could literally be the answer to a lot of questions. And as soon as you actually have that definitive proof that we've got materials that were not made on this earth, that's going to change the conversation massively. Now, whether it's this case or Roswell or any other case, for me, that's one to watch very closely. And um, I'd be extremely interested to see if this material does actually turn out to be well, anything, I, I, whatever the results of the analysis, I'd be really interested to see how it comes about. Now then, going back to the actual case, according to the witness accounts then, after um, the the boys witnessed the military taking away uh, the uh, materials, they didn't really speak about it again for many years. And uh, eventually they, they gave their accounts and, and everything came out. And the final chapters of the book are actually devoted to this new witness to the San Antonio crash. And at the end of the book, they identify her as a relative of uh, the family. The problem is she was actually born in 1953 or eight years after the sighting. So she wasn't actually there to witness the initial thing. But she does talk about handling some of the debris. But the actual piece or the pieces of foil that she supposedly played with are long gone and she talks about all the kind of stories within the family but herself didn't actually witness anything firsthand other than apparently a large burned area of ground which may have had actually nothing to do with the original crash and you have to bear in mind that this this witness has apparently seen some of the material but the material's gone now so we don't even know if that's really true um and you've got to think that this happened eight years after the initial sighting. So she's going to have grown up with the knowledge of some of this story within the family. And for me, although it's interesting, it doesn't really add that much more value to the overall case. So let's try and have a look at some of the best evidence that, that this thing really happened. Um, so much of the book's argument for this case, and, and you know, Paola's you know assertions in interviews hinge on the fact that the witnesses were children at the time and she asserts that children are incapable of lying and, and why would they make this up now 
okay, you know, I, I get it. That That's a point that's been put across there as a reason that, that this is probably true. Another one is also worth mentioning is that this happened before any modern ufo sightings had taken place so it was before roswell it was before the flying saucer wave of the 50s and so on it was before the kind of like the the aliens and ufos and things like that really came into the public imagination again a valid point and you know the the biggest evidence for really which is just like overwhelmingly bigger than any of the other evidence is these materials because if the further analysis of these these materials proves to be something that's not human made then that's it isn't it jobs are good and we've we've got the answer but the problem is is the analysis that's took place so far i don't think is particularly compelling now i don't just simply know enough about the frontier company themselves as to know whether or not they're credible but the actual analysis that they did is just one company and if there's anything of this kind of level of importance the first thing you do is get a second opinion and that's what they're doing so all credit to them for doing that but really we need to just see what the actual analysis of those materials is but as i say it's really one of the biggest things in the ufo topic for me is material analysis if we can get some really good material analysis it's a game changer so some points of evidence against and if i'm honest there are a few more points against really than there are for in terms of the number of the points now obviously the significance of the points is is a personal thing isn't it so you know i'll, I'll present what i think at the end but at the end of the day it's up to each individual to decide what they think of it and it's fascinating whatever you think so first point here is i just don't simply believe the fact that children are incapable of lying i mean i'm a father i've got very young children and many of my friends uh, have children of different ages and i can tell you without any doubt children lie <laughs> they don't necessarily do it maliciously but they lie you know i lied when i was a kid and sometimes what happens when you're a kid which is an uncomfortable truth if you if you go down the path of of, of claiming that children don't lie and that's why the story is credible is that sometimes a lie can kind of, you know, start off small and then grow and grow and grow. And the weight of pressure that's been put on yourself having told that lie as a kid, you go along with it because it's harder to back out than it is to just keep it going. You have to consider that with these cases. This one, the um, Zimbabwe school case and, and a few others as well that involve children. I don't personally... I don't really put much weight into the thing of children wouldn't lie, why would they lie, things like that. Children have massive imaginations. Children, a lot of the time, are more clever and more devious than we give them credit for. The next point, the witnesses recall the army loading up most of the debris, but actually apparently said that they kicked some of it into a hole in the ground and just covered it up with some dirt. That, to me, seems quite improbable. If it actually was an alien spacecraft they're not going to do that are they and it also kind of seems like a little bit of a tidbit of information thrown in to make the story more fascinating it, it kind of suggests that there could be some more of this material buried and you know it just gives a little bit more intrigue to the case and um, i don't want to accuse anybody of making up fabrications or anything like that that's not what i'm saying but that particular thing is a bit of a red flag 
The third witness doesn't really add much to the story, as I said, as they were born years after the event took place, and they only witnessed some of the materials, but not actually the actual initial uh, event itself. There also seems to be some suggestion that the craft was brought down by lightning, which seems a bit improbable given the advanced nature of the craft. However, worth mentioning here, though, that Paola's kind of theory for that is that maybe that this was done intentionally. So maybe it could be that the actual lightning storm really did bring it down because they have pretty bad lightning storms in that area. Or it might actually be that if the craft was some kind of extraterrestrial intelligence that's been sent to you know investigate the the recent explosions of the the atomic bomb which had just been the trinity atomic bomb had literally been uh tested a couple of weeks i believe it was before this sighting and uh i think paula's insertion here uh, assertion should i say here is that she thinks that there's some kind of intervention from an extraterrestrial race and that these craft were sent here as a message almost as a gift to actually give us this this wreckage in order to advance the human race it's a fascinating thought it really is maybe that's what it is because it does seem extremely improbable that this thing came down because it was hit by lightning you've got to think if you can fly across the universe it, you know in the nature of the advanced technology probably not going to be affected too badly by lightning so that's an interesting point I don't. Maybe that's not um, something that makes the case less credible, but it's it's an interesting point to to make in general. There, perhaps this thing came down on purpose. So there was also known weapons testing in the area. As I said, the the Trinity atomic bomb test took place a couple of weeks before, only twenty miles away from where this actually happened with the the craft, and it does seem quite likely to me that that could have something to do with this whole thing now it could be that some kind of weapons test had gone wrong uh, maybe a, a, a related you know kind of thing to the atomic bomb test maybe something that was to do with the actual atomic bomb test and maybe they had seen some people in protective clothing examining the wreckage and then they weren't actually alien beings they were just people in hazmat suits or something similar and they deemed it to be safe and a day or so later the regular army came in to remove it and the rest of the details which appear more extraordinary could actually just be explained by the vivid imaginations of some young children and the fact that they're recalling distant memories i'm not saying that's what i think but it's worth considering as an option and you know it could be that the object actually was an alien craft which had arrived to observe or intervene with the dawn of the atomic age and it's, that seems to be what Paolo in particular is suggesting with the gifted um, sort of hypothesis but to me jury's still out on that one really I'd like to have seen further analysis of these materials that's what it's really going to come down to it's a really fascinating case but without any you know real real significant investigation into the materials it's tough to actually say 100% either way so let's get into some conclusions because I've been talking a long time I'll tell you what <clears throat> the room I'm sat in today is hot so I'm going to try and get through these conclusions pretty quick I thought it was time for autumn I was getting I was getting quite excited about putting my fire on and putting my feet up and having a, a whiskey by the fire in the cold weather 
but apparently not it's gone roasting again so i'm sweating in this room today so uh let's get these conclusions done so my thinking is that there's a strong possibility that this could have been some kind of weapons test or something associated with the weapons testing in that area the fact is the nuclear test at the trinity site took place only weeks before 20 miles away and the residents had apparently seen an unbelievable flash from the test and were no doubt extremely traumatized by that and this undeniably has had a psychological effect on the people there sadly also a physical effect from the fact that the radiation that they apparently you know suffered with various ailments as a result of the radiation throughout their lives but however as a counterpoint to that perhaps the it's something to do with the radiation something to do with the fact that it was one you know uh, the dawn of the atomic age kind of thing maybe that is the reason that some kind of extraterrestrial you know craft appeared and people say things along the lines of well maybe how would they how would they be able to travel all the way to this location within two weeks of having seen the flash of the atomic bomb test but that that really only applies if you're talking about the extraterrestrial hypothesis what if they're not extraterrestrial at all and what if they're here what if they're in some kind of spectrum of light and the there's other beings that exist on this planet that we just can't perceive because we as humans only have a certain amount of light and a certain amount of hearing that we can perceive certain sounds it's something that's fascinated me for a long time that and i think that there's it's quite likely that if there is anything else on this planet apart from us that we just can't perceive you know they wouldn't have to get here all the way from the other side of the universe they would certainly know about it if there was an atomic bomb test and they would be there and perhaps it could even be that there was some kind of you know some kind of interference with the fabric of space-time caused by the atomic test or some kind of interference that we don't know about because we we are not sort of aware of every force that, that is exerted from an atomic bomb. It could it could have ripples across into other dimensions that we're not even aware of, and perhaps the craft itself came from a different dimension. Uh, we just don't know. But as I say, there is also the possibility that something like maybe a large metal object, you know, could have been suspended in the sky. For this is kind of what I keep thinking just keeps popping into my head you know when you see these these atomic bomb tests that were done back in the day they, they kind of put mock farms and mock buildings and mannequins and things to see how they would be affected by the explosion what if they suspended in the sky from some kind of huge balloon or airship or something uh, like a like a tank a metal tank perhaps the metal tank even contained some kind of bacteria or something like that and the idea was that you suspend this tank in the air from a balloon and see how the bacteria contained within the tank is affected by the nuclear explosion and then perhaps what happened is the object broke free from its moorings from the the you know unbelievable power of the explosion drifted around for a while and then came down a couple of weeks later at San Antonio. Maybe the initial crash 
was then checked for radiation or maybe not radiation because I don't think they were that concerned about that really, ironically, uh, back then. But maybe the, the people who went to investigate were wearing hazmat suits because of the possible like bacteria that could have been contained within the, the, the metal tank or something. And in that case, they may have worn hazmat type suits and the boys kind of stumbled across it and got freaked out, especially with the goings on from the explosion. <clears throat> mistook it for something more more alien and i'm not saying that's what definitely happened i'd much prefer it to be an alien craft to be honest i mean that'd be way more exciting wouldn't it but my gut feeling kind of tells me maybe it wasn't you know we're talking about something that happened 20 miles away from an extremely um you know extremely large scale nuclear weapons test you know and only two weeks later this happens you've got to bear that in mind haven't you and as i say that you could look at that different ways you could look at it that if an extraterrestrial civilization was going to intervene that's the time that they would do it but on the other hand there's going to be so many military analysis and things like that going on perhaps something could have been mistaken you know it's it's just worth considering also another thing um mentioned by paula a lot as well in in interviews seems to kind of hinge on the fact that she spent a lot of time researching the case and that the she's been there to do boots on the ground research however essentially what that means is that it's a gut feeling that she got when she visited the place and how much can you really put into gut feeling it's a tough one because a lot of what I was talking about earlier with the Wilson Davis memo was gut feeling. And also, don't get me wrong, I really like um, Paola Harris. I think she's a, she seems like a really nice person and I feel really bad for her that she got a lot of grief about the, the release of this book because there was a bit of controversy about Jacques Vallée and initially people thought he wrote it and then apparently now they both wrote it and I think they kind of... This, you know, Powell is kind of saying it's mostly her book with Jack tagging along. And there was a lot of weirdness around that at the beginning when it got released, and she got some grief for it. And I think she she definitely deserves a lot of credit for what she's done with this, the boots on the ground thing. She's been there numerous times, and and things like that. But but what I question there is, you know, can you really be so certain about something based on a gut feeling and? I don't know. I mean, maybe my gut feeling would be different if I actually went there. You know, who knows? Unfortunately, I don't have the time or the money, especially the money, to go to New Mexico and to actually visit the place. So I'm a bit limited in that regard, unfortunately. But again, it's worth considering. And another thing mentioned a lot by Pauline in the uh, interviews um, is the fact that people should read books and not look at YouTube and things of that nature. And Again, unfortunately, the book that she actually does recommend repeatedly in interviews that I've been uh, listening to is Magic Eyes Only by Ryan S. Wood, which I can only find on Amazon for £400, which is probably about $550. So, unfortunately, it's hardly an affordable option for most people. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, I actually really like Paola. I really respect that approach of boots on the ground and everything, but... And I'm glad that people like her doing it. And, and Jacques Vallée, obviously, absolute legend and, and some incredibly thought-provoking, fascinating hypotheses regarding uh, what, what's going on with the UFO phenomenon. Nothing but respect for both of them. 
But to be realistic, most people can't afford to go to Mexico or buy books for £400. And my opinion is that, you know, YouTube and podcasts and books are all key tools in, in the day and age that we live in now. Those are key tools to doing research. And I think as long as they're used carefully and with an open mind, whilst, you know, remaining logical and sceptical to a certain extent, there's, there's a lot you can learn from them. The thing to remember about that old school mentality of something that I've heard a lot of old school researchers, and I think Bob Bigelow said something like this on the Joe Rogan podcast when he was on there, is the quote, read the literature. thing is with that is the literature is, is really just somebody's opinion, isn't it, at the end of the day? I mean, just because it's written down and it's put into a format of a book, it's, it's yeah, obviously it's a deep dive into a particular topic done by one individual, but really, at the end of the day, it is just the thoughts and opinions of one individual. And I think back in the day, before the internet, books were a lot more, I don't want to say more valuable, but they were kind of the most important thing back in the day because that's that was the best source of information. And don't get me wrong, I've bought some excellent books recently. I've also bought some slightly dodgy ones as well, which if you're thinking about it deeply and logically, you can find some, some holes in the arguments of some of these books. And I was taught in one English lesson at school, which I always remember back to this, about analysis of documents to be be aware or beware of opinions presented as fact. It's one of the few things I really remember from school. I don't know what it was, but that really stuck in my head. And whenever I read newspaper articles and things like that, I always come back to it. And it's it's extremely important, especially these days. And to this end, I'm going to actually try to reference my sources a bit better as we go along. I've, I've kind of touched on it a little bit in this episode. I've talked about you know the places that have Joel Mergier's that that UFO Joe on Twitter um, blog, very, very well-researched blog there, and uh, the Black Vault. Um, And I'm going to try and put more links up and mention more sources wherever I can. And that's going to be interviews, blogs, podcasts, and books as well. Because like I say, don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing books. I think books are extremely important. But my point is more that in this day and age, you can learn just as much, really, as long as you're approaching it right, from interviews and well-researched blogs and podcasts and books. You know, you can learn from all of these things, and they're all key tools if you want to get to the bottom of this mystery in this day and age. And to help any listeners to be able to go back and check for themselves, I'm going to try and actually try and include a little bit more of, of those kind of things. Just need to figure out the formats and stuff to how to do that. But, you know, please don't just take my word for it or anybody's word for it. Go and check this stuff out for yourself. You know, the things I was talking about with the Wilson Davis memo, the things I was talking about with the Trinity case, you know, go and buy the book. You know, Paula Harris and Jack Vallée, they've put a lot of work into the thing. Go and buy it. I recommend it. I bought it. You know, definitely should invest a little bit of your money, very small amount of money really cost really for books like that. Those are the kind of books that are really worth getting and um can't recommend it enough but yeah most importantly is don't take just the the one person who's written a book don't take their word for it don't take you know one one guy who's written a blog 
try and include all of those different angles and then make up your own mind based on what, what you've dug up. You know, there's always a chance that someone could just be presenting their opinion as a fact. And also, you know, I try not to do that with my opinions either because opinions change and they should change. You know, you can arrive at an opinion based on a set of facts and then <clears throat> if a couple of those facts turn out to be false or new facts become available, you've got to change your mind. And this can also be said about skeptics. So, for example, Mick West. And, I've, you know, just a kind of a slight side point here as well. I've, I've kind of been a bit wary about saying specific people's names and critiquing people's viewpoints on things. But I've kind of learned this lesson the hard way. If I'm vague about who I'm talking about, other people who I'm not even talking about assume that I'm talking about them. So I'm just going to start saying people's names. So... Um, yeah, I was trying to like not call people out and not be negative by doing that in the early days, but sometimes it causes more harm than good. So yeah, I'm talking about Mick West here. Um, I recently heard Mick on the Ryan Sprague show, Somewhere in the Skies, very recently, over the last few days. I do think it's worth a listen, to be honest. Um, Mick makes some good points, and I think he's right on a lot of things, actually, not necessarily with UFOs, but he warns about the dangers of going down rabbit holes and conspiracy theories. And the thing is, though, when it comes to the UFO topic, I kind of feel like he's almost falling into his own trap and he's approaching every case with the foregone conclusion that it's not aliens, you know, but yet at the same time, he kind of mocks people who, who have the foregone conclusion that it is aliens. Either way, is just as ridiculous, isn't it? And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, nobody says it was aliens, you know, it's a UFO, isn't it? Like nobody knows what it is. Hence the U, you know, do you know what the U stands for, dude? <laughs> Obviously the thing is with the UFO topic, there's a variety of theories as to what this stuff could be. As Lou Elizondo says, it could be from outer space, inner space, or the space in between. He says that the universe is a lot stranger than we think it is. And this is what we have to bear in mind with this topic. You know, we're talking about Jacques Vallée. You know, this is a guy who started off with the the extraterrestrial hypothesis and then completely changed his mind and now doesn't really think that it's from, from you know, outside of our Earth. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something a lot more complicated than that. And this is what we, we have to bear in mind. We're starting to realise now the world is starting to wake up to the fact that this is not ours, you know, it's very likely to not be our adversaries. So then what the hell is it? You know, and there's a variety of theories to actually explain what that is. And that's where the Galileo project comes in. This is where Gary Nolan and his research into atomic layering comes in. And I think these are the best ways that we move forward on this thing and, and efforts are being made in this direction, which is so exciting. And we have to understand that the thing is with this topic is that there's huge elements of government secrecy. That's what this little series is all about. You know, we've got little tidbits of clues. We've got the Wilson Davis memo, which may or may not be legit. We've got cases like the Trinity case, which may or may not be legit. But one thing's for sure, the government is hiding things from the public. There's no question about that. That's what they've done throughout history. That's what they're doing today. And this is where people like... John Greenwald of the Black Vault comes in. The Fire King. All hail the Fire King. He's only yesterday at the time I wrote my notes, actually. 
released a, a new update on the materials that TTSA had and their collaboration with the US military to analyse them. So let's be clear here. The military worked with and made an agreement with TTSA to analyse the materials that TTSA had. This is a military and this is a, a government that up and only up until a few years ago refused to even acknowledge that UFOs were even a thing. And then all of a sudden, like, we find out that they've made agreements to actually, you know, investigate these materials. There's more going on here than what meets the eye. And uh, in October of 2019, Tom DeLonge Company to the Stars Academy of Arts and Science, TTSA, announced an agreement with the US military. It allowed TTSA to take an untold number of UFO artifacts, pieces of debris, and other related material from unidentified aerial phenomena that they've collected, and to take it to the US Army Combat Capabilities Development Command, CCDC, to advance TTSA's material and technology innovations in order to develop enhanced capabilities for Army ground vehicles. In other words, the Army agreed to offer their equipment to test the UAP artifacts that TTSA had collected in order to see what results may appear. Those results would be mutually shared and exploited. So there we go. That That is literally the Army going, yep, yeah, all right, there's probably something to this. Let's have a look at those materials that you've got there then. It's very different, that, isn't it, from the actual public line that they're willing to say in press conferences and things like that. And it's just another piece of information to say that the army and the government and the military, whatever you want to call them, they take this stuff seriously. They just don't admit it. And that's why I'm trying to get to the bottom of what they actually know about, really. But it's very difficult, isn't it? Because if they deny all knowledge of it, you know, what can you do? But has anything actually been done in the couple of years since that was announced? Because as I said, that was 2019. Now, TTSA did not want to talk about it, but the Black Vault confirmed with the US Army that testing has already been conducted. The only problem is that the actual results from those tests so far and any findings in the future may remain secret for years or possibly even forever. Now, that's actual information directly from theblackvault.com, where you can read the full article and definitely worth checking out. It's, it's become one of my uh, go-to resources for um, for information about these things because it's, it's very, uh, very well-researched. John Greenwald, can't fault him, goes digging in the archives and, and comes up with some really interesting information. And... Uh, Essentially, what is confirmed there is that the US military was in collaboration with TTSA to analyse the material held by TTSA. And after initially being stated by TTSA that the findings would be made public, turns out that that won't be the case after all. I think the COVID pandemic slowed down the efforts and there were also certain considerations which made it impossible to guarantee total transparency with the public on the matter. It's another one, isn't it, where you try to get to the bottom of it, you think, ah, oh, fantastic, we're finally going to find out what's going on with these materials, and then we find out that they're not going to tell us. Why are they not going to tell us? And that is the question, isn't it? For example, what happens if the materials end up being a fragment of a cutting-edge new material that's been made by the US? 
So the US have been testing some new material on some kind of drone or some kind of aircraft. Someone's come off it and TTSA have ended up finding it. Fairly obvious that that couldn't be released. But what if it's not? What if it's that a fragment has been found of an actual UFO craft that's not been made on this earth or not been made by humans? You know, then that's another reason that they might not want to release the, the, the facts there to the public. But that this is this is where the frustration comes in because we just don't know. You know, it could be either, it could logically be either of those. But understandably, some of the investors of TCSA are not happy, and uh, in fact, some of them are absolutely furious about that. It's kind of sad to see people put the money into it, hoping they were going to see some answers from this stuff, and now, unfortunately, even worse, we probably won't see the results of that analysis at all. Unfortunately, but. I need to wrap this up because I've been talking for way too long already. This has been probably the longest podcast I've done so far. I naively got into this. I was expecting to do analysis on uh, the the Wilson Davis memo, the Trinity case, Roswell, Virginia, Aurora, the Kecksburg crash, and the Tunguska event. <laughs> but I managed to only get the Wilson Davis memo on Trinity so there's obviously going to be a part 3 which is probably going to be next week and I'm going to cover those uh, those other ones in some of them in more detail than others there but that's a few other of the significant cases that I'd thought of and that a few people had mentioned as well so part 3 on crash retrievals and what is the government covering up coming next week I'm starting to lose my voice a bit I'm very hot in this room, so that's all for today, guys. So I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this. If you want to add anything to what I've said there, give us a shout on Twitter, at UFO Thinker. And also, I just want to say, especially because if you've listened all the way to the end of this episode, you know, you're probably a pretty hardcore listener of the uh, of the podcast. And I just want to say thanks a lot because the podcast is, is, is growing you know crazy I, I don't really as you probably know if you listen to the podcast a lot I'm not one of these guys that's like oh like and share and comment and don't forget to tell all your friends about my podcast that's not really what it's about I don't think I've ever said that on the podcast apart from just now jokingly um, but the fact that people actually do like and share and do all the rest of it without me even saying you know it just goes to show that people are really you know really rocking with what I'm doing here and there's a lot of people who are out there listening intrigued to get to the bottom of this stuff i don't know everything as i've always tried to be open about but i'm just looking into this i'm curious and everybody on this planet is affected if if this turns out to be something you know really incredible or if it turns out to be absolutely nothing then it's equally important for every single person on the planet and it's you know arguably one of the biggest biggest most fascinating things to happen in this generation so like I say, I'm going to keep digging. I'm, I'm really enjoying finding out about what I can about this. And the more you dig into it, the more complex it turns out to be. And just like I say, thanks again for listening. I don't really check the... Um, I have a podcast thing that tells you about milestones, about like how many listeners of the podcast overall and things like that. I don't really tend to check the numbers very much because it kind of freaks me out. Like the first couple of episodes got like three listens and I was like, wow, crazy, three people listen to the podcast. And now it's way more than that and uh, it sort of freaks me out if I actually think about it. It's great, don't get me wrong, but you know, I want to just carry on doing it the way I always have, just being myself and trying to get to the bottom of this stuff and 
Um, I don't really like the whole numbers thing, you know, uh, that's not what I'm in it for. I'm not trying to be famous, far from it. Um, but, you know, like I say, it, it, I really appreciate the fact that, that there's a little kind of community around what we're doing here and everybody's welcome. So if you're listening, thanks a lot. You know, it's great to have you here. And um, yeah, hopefully I'll see you in the next episode. So take it easy, stay curious. And I'll catch you next time. You have a good podcast. podcast.